0: Welcome to Sparks of History, where Jewish history and world history meet. We are very pleased to have with us today Rabbi Moshe Maimon. Rabbi Maimon is an accomplished lecturer, teacher, and educator, as well as a lifelong bibliophile. Rabbi Maimon is the founder of the Torah Research Institute and has authored and published many articles and books, including recent volumes containing an annotated and revised edition of the commentary, Perush, of Rabbeinu Avraham ben Harambam, Avraham the son of Maimonides. And these include uh, the Perush on the books of Bereshit and Shemot, the Perush on the Torah of Rabbeinu Avraham ben Harambam, as well as the Mamar on the Drashot and Agadot of Rabbeinu Avraham ben Harambam. And today, Uh, We will be discussing the life, works, and legacy, of course, of Avraham ben Harambam, Avraham the son of Maimonides. Rabbi Maimon, thank you so much for joining us today. We appreciate it very much.
1: Thank you very much,
0: Ari, for having me. Pleasure to be here and uh, join your listeners
1: and uh, your viewers. Uh, I understand you've got a very very, uh, large and important following, and I'm very pleased to be able to address them.
0: Thank you so much. Thank you. Um, Maimonides, the Rambam, the great eagle, uh, passes away in the year 1204, and his son, his 19-year-old son, Avraham, takes over as the communal leader in the Nagid in Egypt. What were some of the initial steps taken by Avram ben Aramban uh, as his position as Nagid communal leader of the Egyptian community?
1: So uh, this position was um, essentially a political position. It was a position that was uh, recognized by the governments, by the Sultan. It was uh, primarily for the purpose of representing the Jewish community, but also to direct internal affairs, such as um, setting up uh, the infrastructure with, with other judges it was kind of like a grand mufti, which is the the Islamic counterpart. So the Jewish uh, community had the raiz, the, the which is the Arabic word for rosh, the head, the head of the community, who was in charge of fulfilling um, those obligations and making sure that the community ran smoothly, or um, handle all internal complaints, all administrative affairs. So essentially, it was an administrative political position. However, Jewish people, being who they are, they are the people of the book. They are a religious uh, well-versed community, they wouldn't respect just um, a political leader that wasn't also a great Torah scholar. Now, that doesn't uh, mean that uh, this position was without its pitfalls. The Rambam himself, and maybe we'll get into that in a bit, the Rambam himself, who, who had held this position, was not without um, his ap- political opponents and he was deposed for some amount of time, although at the time of his death, he was pretty much firmly established as the recognized head and the recognized leader and the accepted head. And, um, and so when he passed on, it was natural to give it to his son, Rabbi Ram, who was, uh, by all accounts, a very, very qualified individual, even at the young age of 18, 19 years old. So um, he, he slid right into that position. Now, I'm sure he needed help at the beginning. But uh, right away, we see um, there was, a, again, there was some opposition right, right after he was installed there are um, there's a record in the Geniza of some some uh, kickback whereby communities who, who had um, formerly you know different individual communities under the jurisdiction of this Ra'is of the nuggets, which had uh, the custom of every at the opening of every um, at the tefillah and on other important occasions there was like a convocation where they would mention they called it a reshut where they would mention um, their you know pay homage to the to the leader so at the time when when the young son of the Rambam was installed previous you know um political opponents of the Rambam now felt that they they shouldn't have to give over the same level of respect to uh the son and therefore they opposed um saying this uh, convocation and they formed their own minyanim so as not to have to be part of the shul and uh, we therefore, we find that the de- um uh a, a decree signed by the rabbis the other leading rabbis of the community, saying that for the period of 30 years, we're abolishing all convocations. We're also abolishing all private minyanim. Everybody's going to join together again in the main uh, synagogues. And we won't. And as a nod to the opposition, we will not uh, enforce the saying of this reshut of this convocation. Um, they do make the exception for the private minyan of Rabbi Avram himself, of the nuggets. So he was able to maintain his own private minyan was that standard that the nugget had his own private minion, or is this indicative of, you know, um, prayer reforms that he later became famous for, that already at this early stage he may have been engaged in uh, promulgating. That's a matter of uh, discussion. It's not settled, but it is clear that um, that uh, this went into effect, this decree went into effect where where Ram would have his own minion, everybody else would join together, and they wouldn't have to say the reshoot. But a short time later, he managed to dispel all doubts. He quelled the opposition just by the force of his, of his humble, uh, very capable personality, and every, he won over everybody's acceptance. And a short while later, the decree just uh, was rescinded, and uh, the reshut went on. and, and Other Gnizah documents um, show that he was uh, completely accepted, and for the rest of his life, he did not have to deal with any more opposition.
0: One of the challenges during that period to the traditional Jewish community came from the Kerite community. Um, how, a little bit about the Kerite community during those times and how did Avram ben Harambam, Rambam deal with the local Kerite community?
1: It appears that the Kerite community was not under the jurisdiction of the Nagid, the Rais. It appears they functioned independently um, and therefore the, uh, the, the Rabbinite leaders the which was the head of the, the rabbinical community, could not enforce um, total uh, separation from the Karaites, could not force the Karaites to adopt rabbinical practices. They didn't have that kind of control. They had control over their own community with uh, by imposing uh, the ban and imposing a cheyrem to try to wipe out certain influences which had infiltrated from the Karaite community. But they couldn't directly impose anything on the Karaites. The Karaites were independent. And uh, a very fascinating thing we find in the Rambam's own thought with regards to the Karaites. Um, early on in the Pirish Hamishnais, which is the Rambam's first work, started already in Spain before the Rambam had joined the had had, had found his way to Egypt because of the Almohad uh, persecution, he started the Pirish Hamishnais, and that's his earliest thought. Is you know, it finds its expression in this Pirish Hamishnais In the Pirish Hamishnais. When Rambam addresses the Karaites, he refers to them as Minim, heretics, and he includes Karaites in the the sweeping um, declaration that heretics are to be dispensed with by any means possible, which is a death sentence for the Karait community. If the Rabbinites find themselves where they can dispose of the Karaites, they were enjoined to do so by the Rambam, according to his early thoughts. Later, and this likely has to do with coming into direct contact with them in, in Cairo, in Fostat, in Egypt. He 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 tones down the rhetoric and he adds a he adds a note. In, you know he incorporates it into the text where he writes that this does not apply to present day Karaites who are only inheriting the uh, religion of, of their fathers. The belief system that they have is inherited. They didn't start it there with the, in modern uh, uh, halachic parlance. That he calls him a Tino a captive uh, child who was raised in the wrong tradition. We don't hold it against him. We don't consider him uh, a heretic per se. And therefore, what he had originally written regarding heretics would not apply to the Karaite community. Later on, there's, uh, he, he was asked you know, specific questions. What do we do with the wine of the Karaites? Can we drink their wine? Can we uh, answer amen to their blessings? Do we treat them as Jews or do we treat them as Gentiles? There, in a, a responsum which is somewhat disputed, the scholarly community now believes it is authentic, although Rabbi Shilat and other experts have cast doubts on its authenticity. Um, but I believe that the modern scholarship does prove it to be authentic, particularly because our avram also refers to a lenient responsum of his father, so it's most likely this is the responsum. But in this last, in, in last teshuva, the Rambam takes a very lenient uh, position, and, he, and he's very cordial and conciliatory, and he writes about how the Karaites should be uh, treated with love and respect, and eventually brought back into the fold, where ever possible. Um, and that's a that's a that's a very striking statement from the leader of the rabbinite community. Um, almost almost uh, unprecedented, and you know, usually the Karaites and the rabbinites operate independently. But where they do come into contact, it's usually friction, and in this case, it's. It's the overtures of of peace and friendship on the Rambam's part is very striking. In the Rambam's lifetime and in Rabbi Ravram's lifetime, this wish was not fulfilled. However, later on, in Rabbi Avram's namesake, the Rabbi Ram, the Nugget the which is his grandson, the son of his son Rabbi David Hanugid, in in Rabbi David the Second's I'm sorry, in the Second's tenure, there is a report about three hundred family heads of the Karai community actually embracing. Uh, the rabbinism, which is a, also also an unprecedented case. This was reported by the Kaftar Rafferach. Others who didn't know the history well enough have conflated this second Rabavram with the first Rabavram, and they've attributed this great uh, act to uh, our, the, you know, the Rabavram under discussion, the Rambam son. However, it didn't happen in in uh, Rabavram the first lifetime. It happened in the lifetime of his grandson. So we do see that the seeds planted by the Rambam eventually did bear fruit. Uh, and that also contributes to the, uh, the, you know, weighs in on the side of those who view this uh, response of the Rambam as authentic, because later history does bear out a very uh, conciliatory and, and uh, peaceful approach to the Karaites.
0: The Rambam had a unique relationship with Yemenite Jewry. The Igera Tehman, the epistle to Yemen, uh, solidified him as, as uh, a leader of, of the Yemenite community, even though he was so far away. How did his son Avram Ben-Harambam Continue that relationship with the Yemenite Jewry.
1: Well, we do know that the Yemenites uh, continue to view uh, Rab Avraham as the successor, and a good portion of the uh, remaining tissue of of Rabbeinu Avraham in the uh, volume of of uh, of random responsa. There's there's three volumes of response. There's there's one which is, addresses criticism of Sefer Hamitzvot. There's another volume specifically addressing criticism of the Mishneh Torah, the Yara HaHazakah. And then there's a third volume put out by Mekitzi Nerdamim in the early part, about 100 years ago or so. Uh, it's, it's the Freiman Goitain edition by Mekitzi Nardum. and That is a collection of random responsa. And those, uh, a, a big portion of them are addressing queries sent in uh, by the Yemenite community. So we do know that the Yemenites continued, uh, they, they, had, they had saved this address, the Rambam's address, and they continued to direct their queries to um, to 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 their you know who is now their accepted leader, and they sent their questions to Rabbi Abraham, and he answered in kind. Um, we find that this relationship actually continued down to Rabbi Hoshua Nuggets, the fifth generation Nugget, um, you know, for a, a great great grandson of Rabbi Aram, Um They uh, his tishuvot, the shiur of Rabbi Hoshua Nugid, are also addressed to the Yemenite community, and they actually preserve the only complete manuscript we have of these tissue votes. So we know this relationship continued on for a long time. What's interesting to me, however, is that uh, while a lot of the Rambam's original Arabic writings were preserved meticulously by uh, the Yemenite community, as well as the Mishnah Torah, but they preserved the master's writings perfectly. But uh, I always uh, was hopeful that part of the long-lost uh, Sevar Hamaspek, which is Rabbi Rambam's magnum opus, we may get into that soon, but uh, I, always, I was always hopeful that maybe the Yemenite community had preserved you know, parts of it were preserved in the Geniza, but uh, most of it is lost. And I'm always hopeful that maybe, you know, because the, the Yemenite collection of Rishonim is still, you know, being cataloged. It's, it's not, um, that hasn't been exhausted yet. Although, so far, um, no, uh, no uh, Sefer Hamaspic has shown up among the, the Yemenite uh, preserved writings. Although Yemenite scholars do cite the Sefer Hamaspic, uh, Rabbi Ram ben Shlomo, is one Yemenite um, Irish, who's recently been published. Um, it was one of the last publications of Rav Kapach before he passed on, were the writings of Rav Avram Ben Shlomo on the Navi. So those writings do contain references to Rabbeinu Avram. So I know that they had the writings, but so far uh, no copies of the Sefer Hamasbik have survived uh, intact. In
0: um, before we get to all the, the writings, um, what is uh, Sufism, and why is Avram Ben-Aramam associated with Sufism, if I'm pronouncing it right even?
1: Yeah, that's the right way. Uh, an individual is a Sufi, and uh, the movement is Sufism. Um, the Sufis, which is comes from the Arabic word uh, wool, was a group of, um, of ascetics, Muslim ascetics, who would uh, practice uh, solitude. They would practice uh, chastity. They would practice some um, very kind of austere lifestyles where they would um, fast and absolution and praying a very, very, um, um, the, the, the Hebrew word for it is uh complete severe abstinence. And uh, they were always, you know, concentrated on the goal of, of uh, attaining spiritual uh, revelation, what we would call nevua, prophecy. Now, um, Rabbi Avram exhibits the same tendencies uh his his brand of hasidut his moral and ethical compass is set for the same kind of uh uh direction a lot of his um his a lot of the writings that have survived show that he is 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 preaching to an audience that is interested in uh, these kind of practices and he's gearing them and showing them how they can also reach the final destination there are certain code words that he uses which are also uh, found in this in this Muslim literature, which shows that this um there is some degree of uh, overlap here now the exact degree of overlap is a uh, is a very good question i I have in, in my writings I tend to minimize the Sufi influence uh, on Re andram because I have found that a lot of the um, a lot of the attention given to rebram is from the academic community who are interested primarily in Sufism and as such they you know, there's an old expression that if the only tool you have is a hammer, then everything looks like a nail. So if you're interested only in Sufism, so then you're going to find Sufism wherever you looked, and, and they have they they found Sufi influences in the Rambam in the in the Kuzari. The Chovas it's, it's, it's a foregone conclusion by them that it's really a Sufi manual dressed in Jewish garb. So I, I find this they overlook they, they take they take the pendulum a little too far. They overlook the rabbinical uh, underpinnings. Of of these works, and particularly Rabbi Rambam, he views himself primarily as a Maimonidean. While we may point out differences of emphasis between him and his father's system of thought, Rabbi Rambam himself maintains that he is a follower of his father. He's practicing his father's Judaism. He's practicing the the, the thought of the Moranavuchim. In his mind, he's following the chinuch that he had received. He's following his upbringing, and therefore, I think to to just talk about a Sufi influence without realizing and understanding and appreciating the rabbinical underpinnings of Rabbi Avram's life uh, and thoughts, I think is is also missing the boat. But to, but to be sure, there is a degree of influence. Now, is it direct influence? Did Rabbi Ram have clandestine uh, sessions with, with Sufi leaders who instructed him privately in, in the way of Sufism? Highly unlikely, I, I would think. Rabbi Avram talks with candor, openness. That's one of the one of the earmarks of Rabbi Avram's writings is the direct, forward, and forthright approach, and this is what this is what really uh, attracts people. Who, serious students of Rabbi Avram will all tell you he's unique in that regard. And is so I, I don't think he's hiding anything. Um, he does talk about he addresses concerns that he had just adapted sufi practices. We'll talk about that further again when we talk about the specific reforms, the prayer reforms that he's famous for. But um, in all the cases, he says, if they have good practices, I'm going to emulate those good practices, not because it's their practice, but because it's good. Which is uh, that that has uh, echoes of the Rambam's famous statement of Shema haEmes Misha Amra. You take what's good, and uh, Rabbi Rabbi firmly believes, and he brings proof for it that the good practices that he's emulating do emanate from the Torah. It was the biblical uh, form of, of of worship and asceticism. So he's he, he claims that. The Sufis may have preserved it, but I'm not taking something from the Sufis. It's likely in my mind that if you look at the um, rabbinical sermons um, of the last hundred years in America, they, uh, you'll, you'll find that they, there's a, a Western element in them. Western values feature prominently, right? Um, there was a very interesting article. Um, I don't remember uh, the exact uh, chapter and verse. but There was an interesting article about um, uh, rabbinical sermons from the Civil War era. And it shows how rabbis in the south were preaching pro-slavery, and rabbis in the north were anti-slavery. And then the same thing happened with socialism. When socialism was on the rise, there were rabbis who found the uh, you know who found the basis for socialism in the Torah. And when socialism is out of uh, is, is out of vogue, so now democracy is is, uh, is is to be highlighted. It's supposed to show you that rabbis are influenced by the prevailing Weltanschauung. They have uh, they're they're not they don't live in an ivory tower. And prevailing norms um, do make their way into the base measures, and that's the way the base measures was designed. and the base measures designed to adapt and acculturate what's good and, and proper and and, and, uh, and, and and act accordingly. So Rabbi Avram did the same thing. I mean, whatever you know none of the people who talk about the, the Sufi influence on ofram question, well, where did the Sufis get it from?" You know these, these ideas were in vogue, shoot was in vogue and um and 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 the arab of Ram was influenced just like they were and uh and a lot of it comes from the torah you know I'll, I'll cite one example yeah. celibacy uh, is there did you want to ask something no 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 please okay so um uh one of the you know the Sufis practiced celibacy and they held it up as an ideal arab of rum does as well of, of course he says it's not for everybody it's for the very 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 select few people on the uh level of uh, and of. You know, not really not the way of the masses and even not the way of the elite. It's for the very, very rear high top percentile. People who are so connected with Hashem and so spiritual and in constant commun- communion and communion and contact with their spiritual side. For such people, it's, it can be appropriate to practice celibacy. Now, people have held this up as an example of Rabbi Vram's Sufism. But I wrote a short article once where I demonstrated that people who were far away from the influence of Sufi, the Abar Beno in Spain, and un-Christian Spain, he, he, had, he, he holds up an ideal. Of course, you could point to the example of Ben Azai in and the Gemara. Ben Azai, the Gemara says, he was nafsho chashkabat Torah, and, and therefore he didn't take a wife. So how do you view that Gemara depends on, on your own inclination. Some have viewed that Gemara as saying, Nebuch poor Ben Azai, he couldn't take a wife. But others have understood the Gemara to be holding up that Ben-Azai was the ideal. It's the very few, he's the top one percentile. And for such a person, this is the appropriate path. So it's not necessarily that Rabbi Ram got this from Sufis. He understood Judaism this way, possibly because of the attitudes prevalent where he lives at the time, which is what influenced the Sufism themselves.
0: So, so you, you, Rabbi you don't have a problem reconciling um that discussion of Sufism with um, the Rambam's Golden Mean is that an interpretation? Was his son that was part of his understanding of the Golden Mean to 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 bring in some of those elements?
1: The Golden Mean is a is itself somewhat ambiguous. It it, it actually appears that the Rambam himself modified his tone over time because in in Shimon where he talks he he let he. he uh, lays out the golden mean. And again, Hilchot Deoti he lays out the golden mean. But in Hilchot Deot he adds some exceptions. And it's an ambiguous paragraph. But he talks about chassidim special people who would go, not directly in the middle, but they would go towards one of the extremes. And he and he says that's good. So it's not entirely clear. Um The Rambam is writing for a very different audience than Rabbi Ram is writing for. And we have to talk about Rabbi Ram's work. We'll talk about why he chose the language he chose and the audience he chose. But it's a different audience. Rabbi Rambam's audience is much more local, and it's a generation later, in a different, uh, totally different milieu. So the Rambam writing for the Jewish nation as a whole, and he wrote it in Hebrew because he wanted it to spread beyond the borders uh, of, of of the Arabic speaking lands where, where he lived. He wrote it in Hebrew for the Jewish nation. So he's putting down um, the law for everybody. The Rambam himself was challenged on certain laws that he omitted, and he and he and he. Lays down in and it's to the sages of Lunil in province. He writes about how he says what I wrote is the bottom line for the Jewish nation. So for the bottom line for the Jewish nation, he's giving a prescription which works for everybody. For Rabbi rum's specific target audience, he believes maybe uh, another um, another approach, and it's also largely not a different approach but a different emphasis. So it's not entirely clear to what degree there's there, there's even a conflict here although it certainly is a different emphasis. That much is clear, and uh, and it's also clear that Avram believes that he is following his father's prescription as well.
0: Getting now to the the writings of Avram ben Harambam, what were the main writings? Um, What's missing? You mentioned it before. What's missing from those writings? And how much of the writings were defenses of his father's positions that came under attack.
1: Okay, so the the we'll start with the second question. The uh, writings that were defenses of the father's position were the, the first two volumes of responsa that were published, that we mentioned. Um, I'll, I'll call them by name. There was the Ma'as and Nisim. These names were not given by Rabbi Ram. These games were given by the publishers in the 1800s. So uh, the Ma'as and Nisim is the responsa on Sefer HaMitzvot all um, addressing the criticism of one Reb Daniel Habavli. Reb Daniel Habavli, under the influence of the Babylonian Gionate, which was already in serious decline at the time of the Rambam, but still viewed the Rambam with jaundiced eyes because they felt the Rambam was usurping their authority. And uh, they produced one great scholar, Reb Daniel. and Reb Daniel wrote strictures on on the Rambam's works. So his strictures on, um, on Sefer vote were responded to by Reb Ram point by point in his Ma'ase Nisim. Another work is the Birkat Avraham, again a name given uh, in the 1800s, to the response of Rabbi Avram addressing Rab Daniel's criticisms on the Mishnah Torah. That's two separate volumes, each addressing criticisms of his father's works. Part of uh, Sefer Hamasbeg, we're also, which is the magnum opus which we'll get to momentarily, were also written to fill in the void um, of the Rambam's overwork, which shows again that the fealty he has to his father, um, I've I've highlighted in my edition of the Maimar al-Adrashot how Rabbi writes that he was writing this because his father had wanted to and not got around it, and therefore he was he, he's filling in that that gap with this uh, small work, which was incorporated in, in his uh, larger work. There was also his uh, Milchamot Hashem, another treatise written specifically to defend. Uh, um, the Rambam's works uh, at the time of the controversy where they were being uh, burned in France. So that was a, a short treatise written to defend his father. We know uh, from his writings that he had started putting together a commentary on Mishneh Torah, providing sources for the Rambam. That has not survived. But again, it was a preoccupation with explaining his father's works, being the Nosa of his father. So that was a, a definitely a primary objective of his However, what he considers his magnum opus is a work, an independent work called the Maspikl of De Hashem, Kifaya al Bidin. is the Arabic word. That is the um, the, the work I referenced earlier. Uh, originally it was a multi-volume compendium of a, kind of like a um kind of like a companion to the Mishnah Torah. Again, this is not we don't have the work, we have parts of it. So it's there's somewhat of a there's there's some degree of conjecture here. But scholars have wondered, why did Rebbein Abraham need to write uh, a compendium of Jewish practice when we have the Mishneh Torah? His father wrote a uh, classical work of Jewish law and practice called Mishneh Torah. Why did Rabbeinu Abram see fit to write his own independent work um, on the same topic? I believe, based on my study of, of, of uh, this work, this Hamas, that this was going to be the companion volume. The, the work itself, the Mishneh Torah, is written in Hebrew. It's somewhat terse. It's point by point, do's and don'ts, largely. It's, it's, uh, it's very prescriptive, halakha by halakha. This is more discursive. It's, um, it's an examination of the sources, explaining the, the rationale behind things. And it's written in Arabic. It's written to the, the, the popular companion to those who may not have the background and the, uh, the scholarship to be able to appreciate it themselves. So I think it's more localized for the, the Arabic-speaking public that he was familiar with. And he was writing it for them to be able to appreciate the Mishneh Torah. At the time, in in Rabbi Avram's lifetime already, towards the end of the Rambam's lifetime, really, but already in Rabbi Avram's lifetime, the Mishneh Torah had supplanted the study of Rif, which had already supplanted the study of Gemara. And people are now going straight to the Mishneh Torah. And Rabbi Avram feels that by going straight to the Mishneh Torah, you don't appreciate the background, you don't appreciate the thought, you don't appreciate some of the messages and the Musar and the underpinnings of of what's going on behind the Mishnah Torah, and therefore he's supplying that in his own compendium. So I, that's that's what I believe is the focus of this Hamas Miklo of De What has survived? Um, two large portions have survived, which together are only a fraction of the, the work itself. Maybe a quarter, maybe less of the work itself. But what has survived is one large, which has turned into a large Sefer of Musar. That's the, the one that's more readily uh, available, the one that's more well known, uh, you know, people know Rabbi Ramban This is the work they know. They know his his Musar Sefer of Hamaspiklo de Hashem, which is a small part of the last volume. The last volume of this of this magnum opus was dedicated towards bringing a person to the final goal you mentioned earlier. Uh, the final destination was communion with uh, with Hashem and being totally attuned to your spirituality. So ethical perfection is a prerequisite for that, for, for attaining that goal. And Ravina Avram lists uh, a, a completely ethical work, detailing how to achieve ethical perfection, which will then lead to um, spiritual perfection. The spiritual perfection part is missing, but the ethical journey is preserved in this volume of Amaspekel de Hashem, and that's the, what's known as the Musar part. There's also the Tefillah part, which is from the earlier sections. I mean, the second section, which which uh, follows Hilchot Tefillah. And and it gives um, the do you know the behind the scenes of the do's and don'ts of tefillah, explaining why certain things are important for tefillah, what they mean, and where innovation is uh, good and acceptable, where it's not. Um, this in this in this section, which has attracted the attention of scholars, although in the Beit Midrash it's largely unknown until uh, this generation, um, is is where he addresses the accusations that he was a reformer and introduced prayer reforms which were unwelcome and unjewish so he addresses these charges in this tiffy section and um there's some of the very fascinating parts of his life come to light but uh, in the overview of what Sefer Hamasvik was that's part of the second section and then there's the large gap till the to the fourth section there's little um pages come to light from the Geniza little uh five pages here, a page here, a page there, some dealing with Shechita, some dealing with Hilchus Ritzicha. I myself translated from a manuscript in the, in the St. Petersburg Library, there was a manuscript on the laws of Ritzicha, which discussed the episode at the end of Bereshit with Kayan and Hevel, so I used that to supplement the Purusha Torah, which is missing in Bereshit. So that, that's that's what, uh, one piece that I was able to bring to light, um, but, uh, but there's no other big units um, that have survived, as far as we know, so um, it's largely fragmentary, the rest of the Sefer. Um, that's what Rabbi Ram considers his magnum opus. That's the Sefer Hamasbeck, Lorde Hashem. And the work which I have devoted a good part of my life working with is his uh, Pirosh HaTorah, his Bible commentary. Um, he, he discusses himself in a letter that he wrote the different works that he was working on. He talks about um, Hamasbeck as being his magnum opus, but his fervent desire is to be able to finish writing his Bible commentary at the time of the writing of the letter, which was five years before he passed, he says he was in the middle of Bereshit. What has come down to us is the full Bereshit and Shemot. We don't have the full Bereshit, but he had completed Bereshit and Shemot. And that's what's come down to us. Did he manage to finish it? Probably not. Already at the writing of this letter, he's complaining about how he has no time to work on it. If he had the time to devote himself solely to the Bible project, he would finish it in two years, he says, since he did not have the time. And we know his life was cut short. Uh, in a play, it's likely that uh, he never got past Shemot. That's that's my understanding. Um, but this Bible commentary is what I have uh, reissued in the new edition. And that pretty much rounds out uh, the works of Abinu Abraham Ben-Arambo.
0: How, how did you get into Abraham Ben-Arambo? How, how did it all start? Um, what manuscripts did you end up working from? And what are some of the issues that you faced in interpreting the works of of Ben Haramba?
1: Okay. Um, uh, as a child, I became aware of our family's tradition. Uh, the name is Maimon. It's not a pen name. It's, it, it's, uh, it's, it's our family name. My family comes from Turkey, which is not an Arabic-speaking uh, uh, Jewish population. So the name Maimon was not a common uh, first name there. But it was the family name, and the family tradition was that uh, we are direct descendants from Rambam. Um, as a child, that very much uh, gave me pride, and it also intrigued me to go and uh, study the Rambam's works. And studying the Rambam's works, I I got interested in studying Rabbeinu Avram's works. There was at the time what was available from from Avram was a one thin, not so thin, but one volume containing the Pirusha Torah together with the Musar part of the Sefer Hamas. So. I was drawn to the study of Chumash and I tried uh, breaking my teeth on the pierce uh, on Chumash. It was very, very difficult. The language was terse. The language was obtuse. It's a translation from the Arabic in the edition that was available at the time was not the scholarly um, original edition put out by um, a scholar named Ernst Wiesenberg in 1958. It was an offset of just the Hebrew text of the Wiesenberg edition without the notes, Without the Mara Mekomos, without the Pesukim, without any explanatory notes, of course, just the text. And this block of text was very, very hard. But here and there, there's nuggets there which are unusual in in uh, in the Mefarshim on Chumash. Just unusual outlook that he has, unusual statements he makes, an unusual focus that he sheds on you know that'll show on the Pesukim. So I was drawn to it, and I would keep visiting it and revisiting it and revisiting it until I finally felt that, you know, I know enough of this work that I should really do a public service and just reissue it. I was going to reissue it. I was going to insert the Psukim, insert the Meyer McComos, here and there, give a little explanation or a cross-reference, but largely stay stay out of it and just make it available again because by this time it had been out of print. Um, but, of course, um, you know, things have a nature uh, of their own. And as I got into it and I was as I was... Is explaining it and exploring it, I was blown away because I was, I, I thought I had known it and I, and I had seen that I really did not. It was so much deeper and so much more than I had thought. There were so many little references that I had missed, so many nuances that I didn't understand and couldn't understand in the beginning, but now after taking it apart, I was able to understand it. Now, luckily for me, and this answers the question of the manuscripts, luckily for me and for the Jewish world, the manuscript of this sefer is, is available to the public. Now, it's written in Arabic, so uh, that is daunting to some people who may not have an understanding of Arabic, but it's available and it's a it's a it's a well preserved manuscript in uh, the Oxford Library in the Bodleian section of the library. It's available there. It's uh, I forget the number, had the call number. It's it's a It's in the Huntington collection, and it's preserved. And I was able to consult the manuscript. I was able to find a copy of the Wiesenberg edition and work with his translation, with his notes, and slowly but surely. As I got further and further into it, I felt that I really got to update the translation as well. I've, I've, I've started picking up the hang of the Arabic phrases and idioms and the specific language that he uses. Now, no two, um, you know, scholars of the Geniza will tell you this: no two Geniza writers speak the exact same Judeo Arabic. There's different turns of phrases. There's different words that they use at different uh, in different occasions, and and so. But I got the hang of his language and the hang of his idiom. And I was able to now go and update the translation, which really prolonged the project much longer. But the more time I spent on it, the more uh, rewarding it felt, and the more uh, I was able to explain and elucidate. And it's this little, the, this little safer, this seventy-page safer or so, now became two volumes of about fifteen hundred pages. But I hope that readers can uh, appreciate now the thought and and the and the commentary of Rabbeinu Avram.
0: And, and then all all this research. What did you discover of, uh, about R Avram Benarambam's methodology and approach in Perush commentary to Torah?
1: To me, the most important part of uh, the process was understanding the library of Rabbeinu Avram Benarambam. In other words, understanding what Rabbeinu Avram learned to understand what he was, the different influences that he was assimilating in his own commentary. When we approach, um, I'll give you a a more uh, tangible example, is the Ibn Ezra. The Ibn Ezra belongs to the Andalusian school. It belongs to the Peshat school, what's today known as the Peshat school. Now, in yeshivas, we know nothing about that Peshat school. We weren't taught anything about that. We know Rashi, we know Taisvis, and we know the Ramban. And we know that the Ramban has issues with the Ibn Ezra because Ibn Ezra sometimes goes too far and he's too liberal. And we therefore view the Ibn Ezra as an outlier. You don't understand where the Ibn Ezra is coming from. But scholars will tell you that once you understand that you have to first look in uh, Rav Sadia Gon's translation, and Rav Sadia Gon's Arabic translation, which is now available in Hebrew translation, is the bedrock of the entire Andalusian school. That's what they've learned. They learned Chumash from Rav Sadia Gon. They don't learn Chumash Rashi, they learn Chumash from Sadia. So we're going to learn Rav Sadia Gon's, even just his translation, but especially if you learn the longer commentaries of Rabbi Sadia where he expounds on everything. Uh, Rav R- R- never met a tangent he didn't love. And if, if he sees an opportunity to explain something that was previously unexplained, he's going to take it. Uh, so his commentary is very long. So long, in fact, that the Ibn Ezra criticizes Rav Sadia Gon. In the Ibn Ezra's introduction, he writes about how Rav Sadia Gon's pur- purushim are too long for anyone to learn. That's not, that's not useful. For us, it's an amazing uh, treasure trove of golden material from Sajigon, more going more of which is becoming available as scholars pay attention to the Gneza's treasures. But uh, so to understand Ibn Ezra, you've got to understand where he was coming from. You've got to understand Ibn Ezra uh, Now Rav Sajigon's translations, in turn, served as the basis for the linguistic school of Spain. Spain produced great medak, Ibn in Janach and Ibn Saruk, and later distilled in Hebrew by Rav David Kimchi. So these these works of grammar... Are essential to understanding where the Ibn Ezra is coming from, how he approaches uh, his, his rules of diktuk, how he understands the different shorashim, how he translates different terms. All that you have to understand comes from what he was brought up on. So in Rabbeinu Avram, it was much the same. Understanding Rabbeinu Avram necessitated for me to go and explore that whole world that he was coming from. I've had to, of course, spend a lot of time in Rabsadi going. Now, this, a, a great benefit of, of my commentary. Which did not exist in the Weisenberg trans- edition. The Weisenberg, the original is- edition was published before a lot of Rapsadia had come to light. Rabbisadia's successor was Rabbisheol ben Khafni Gaon, the father-in-law of Rabbisheil Gaon. Repshmul ben Chafni was uh, the successor of Rabbisadia, and he continued where Rabbisadia left off, writing commentaries to the parts of the Torah that Rapsadia did not. Those commentaries also only came to light in the last fifty years or so after the original edition had been published. Uh, the other Geniza riches. Writings of Rabbein Avram, the, the second uh, volume that I mentioned from Sefer Hamazbik, uh, that also only came out after the Wiesnberg. So there was so much more available, so, much, so many more resources were now available to me, so I was really able to reconstruct the world that Rabbeinu Avram lived in uh, to a degree that was not capable at the time of the, of the first publication of the Sefer. So that, to me, was a big hurdle and a big challenge, and I and I hope I met it successfully, because I really immersed myself in that world, and I learned the Seferi Dikduk and I learned the uh, the works of the Geonim. I spent as much time as I can reading the original Arabic works of the Rambam to understand the phrases and understand the background. And and uh, it wasn't easy, but I, I believe that was probably the most challenging part of this work. And hopefully, um, my dealing with this challenge is reflected positively in the commentary.
0: And, and the works, Rabbi Maimon, that, that you put together on the Drashot and the Agadot, that's a whole separate enterprise, and, and what what was that all, what, what was involved in that, and what, again, is unique about Avram ben Harambam's approach to Agadot?
1: Rabbi Avram um, included this chapter on understanding the Drashot of Chazal in his magnum opus in the Hamas Beglov De Hashem. Although the impetus for writing it, he says, was because his father had left had uh, left it unwritten. Father had wanted to write um, a manual for understanding the very agada, Chazal's non-legal words, the words where Chazal expound on pesukim or talk about um, what seems sometimes seemingly mundane matters or ethical matters. Those are that's all falls under the rubric of agada, and the Ramam had wanted to write a work addressing these, but 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 eventually but did not. And Rabbi Eliezer says therefore he was uh, choosing to include such a work among his. Um, in, in his Masbik of De Ashem. Now, I felt that this work would be very helpful in understanding Rabbeinu Avram's approach to the Midrashic commentary that is commonly available. I mean, it's, it's the Midrashim al-Humash as well as in Rashi, who quotes a lot of Midrashim. So I felt understanding Rabbeinu Avram's non-Midrashic a- approach. He has the Pshad approach, the, um, like, like similar to the Benezra, understanding how he viewed Chazal's drashot and agada. Would be helpful for for the student who wants to read the the Jean So therefore, I said I should really um, include include um e- either a synopsis or a small edition of that work together with uh, my introduction to to the Pirush Um And again, so my work on the on this Maimar Al Dirashot grew into its own grew into its own work, a smaller work, but uh, an independent work. This um, Sefer of Rabbi already before I worked on it. Had garnered some opposition, again because the Beth Midrash is not fully um, conversant in the Geonic approach in the Andalusian approach, and therefore certain statements that Rabbeinu Abraham makes struck them as is as being the opinions of those beyond beyond the pale. Um, one of my goals in in elucidating this this treatise of Rabbeinu Abraham was to show how this thought is really natural the natural. Um, evolution of the Gionic approach. And the, the ideas that some have found to be beyond the pale are ideas expressed by the Rambam, ideas expressed by Reb ideas that are current in the intellectual milieu in which Rabbeinu Avram operated. And therefore, this does not constitute an outlier opinion, but it's it's actually one of the most coherent statements of the Gionic approach, and therefore it's very important, uh, safer, to be learned and understood by those, of course, who who can Appreciate and benefit from it,
0: and what is the the main approach uh, to Agadot, so if it could be? What
1: is that elephant in the room? <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, That um the, the in a nutshell, that the the statements that people have found uh, too much to, to handle are where where is where Rabbi Abraham writes that when Chazal speak on non legal matters, the statements they make do not necessarily reflect the tradition that they have dating back to Moshe Rabbeinu on, on Arsini, but it's the opinions that they came up with themselves, influenced, of course, by information they had available at the time. So scientific matters, he says, and medical matters, those do not represent um, information transmitted by Hashem to Moshe Rabbeinu. It transmi- it's it's their, their transmission of the best knowledge available to them at the time. So their pronouncements about the medicine, their pronouncements about astrology, he gives some examples and 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 in Rabbeinu Avram's view, Chazal themselves uh, admitted as such. He has a Gemara which, according to his reading of the Gemara, which is which may reflect another uh, girsa, which is substantiated by uh, by other Geniza material. Chazal themselves admits that in their debates with uh, Gentile scholars and scientists, they admit that the that the Gentile science got certain things right; it was more advanced in some respects than the science that they had been. Uh, Preachy. So that's in Rabbeinu Abraham's mind. That's 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 that shows us that the source of the Chachamim's scientific knowledge is not from Sinai, but rather from what was available to them. He makes it very clear. In, in Rabbeinu Avram's mind, this this uh, understanding of Chazal only enhances their prestige. It doesn't take away from their prestige. It shows that they were honest. That they were doing the best they can. And if they're and if and if you'll find some fallacy in their uh, science that should not impugn what is their main objective and that is being the transmitters of the Torah Shabalpeh because they're two separate objectives. Um, but contrary to what you know, Rabbeinu Avram felt, that what he was doing was honoring the prestige of, of the sages, others have felt, and primarily the others are, are those who grow up in a tradition where secular science is not valued at all and so uh, they don't see uh, any reason to reconcile secular science with, with uh, the words of the sages. And in that tradition to say that the sages made any mistake in any manner is impugning the honor of the sages. Quite the contrary of, of Rabbeinu Abraham felt. So um, again, it's it's an, it's an important dichotomy. Both views have legitimate expression in different, uh, in different Bateh Midrash. And I think it's important to understand that Rabbeinu Abraham's base medrash was a viable base medrash and was the main base medrash for a very long time in a certain part of the world. And maybe the the, the the majority of the world at that
0: time. you you had mentioned the um, prayer "quote unquote" reforms. What are we talking about? What was that all about?
1: This is um uh, in Rabbi may not have uh, invented them. He may not have started these reforms, but he was part of this um, pietistic Beit Midrash. We know that his father-in-law was a prominent member of of this. Um, um, who was, a, who was a student of the Rambam, and a dayan on his beddin, Rabbeinu Hananul ben Shmuel, a prominent figure in the in the Gneza world and in, in, in fostat of the Rambam's times. Rabbeinu Avram's father-in-law was the head of this Beit Midrash. So we know there were others who contributed to this um, Beit Midrash, but this Beit Midrash practiced um, certain practices that they felt were biblically mandated, uh, such as, if you study the Chumash, You'll see that whenever someone is giving thanks to Hashem, he prostrates himself. Abraham Avinu gets good news from Hashem. He bows down and prostrates himself in, in thanks to Hashem. Um, so, Rabbeinu Abram says, this is the original biblical form of worship. We know that in the Beit HaMikdash, that was part of the Yom Kippur service, which we still uh, practice as a Zecher for the original service in the, in, the, in, in the Beit HaMikdash on Yom Kippur. So, he says, if that was the original form of worship, we should, why shouldn't we do it? If raising out hands outstretched to Hashem was a form of worship, like it's va'isa kapav el Hashem, so we should do the same. So in this Beit Midrash, they would they would practice hestachavaya, uh, they would practice raising their hands out to Hashem. He also deduces from gemarot that it's not proper to sit in any posture in the in the Beit Knesset unless you're facing the Aron Hakodesh. So he instituted that instead of sitting around the perimeter of the Beit Midrash, which is way um, Middle Eastern communities yeah in some cases, still do today. you go to Israel, you'll find certain old schools that are still set up that way. But he instituted that everyone would sit in rows, not on chairs, of course, in the middle East of his time. they were sitting on the floor, but they were sitting in rows facing the front of the of the synagogue. Um, these were also common in um by by their Muslim counterparts. So it seems that the yeah, opposition was politically motivated, but the political motivation hid under the, under the guise of, of religious motivation. And they complained that this nugget, this is, um, and the, the complaint was brought by members of the family that had originally opposed the Rambam's uh, leadership, members of that family, which was a, a powerful and uh, wealthy family. This family uh, brought the, they brought a complaint to the sultan that Beno Abraham is instituting reforms to Judaism. What kind? You can't have a leader of the Jewish community that's uh, instituting reforms that are counter to the Jewish religion. So he has to be deposed, and you've got to put in a new leader, and we know just the man for the job. This is the complaint they uh, brought to the sultan. So Rabbi Abraham um, composed a defense in Arabic for the sultan of himself, and he said he's not instituting any reforms. He's practicing original Jewish practices, and furthermore, he's only doing that in his own personal Beit Midrash. Now, on the halachic aspects of, of this opposition... That's where he addresses in the Sefer Hamaspek, where he talks about in detail about um when we could imitate farm uh, customs when we cannot what is proper what's not and in very long um exposition of all the point by point refutations of this of, of those who had opposed these quote unquote reforms all of them in Rabbeinu Abram's mind come or date back to the they back to the Chumash. They back to the Gemara. They're all old, viable Jewish practices which had fallen out of, uh, fallen out of uh, use because of the long exile. That's that's, um, that's that's how he puts it. And in his mind, he was doing the right thing. We bring him back. And again, he was not forcing them on anybody. But this Bet Midrash was practicing these practices.
0: We're not talking about any textual changes. These these right. are there's no textual there's no, no, textual. no. In the text at all.
1: No. Not to, not to my knowledge okay. there are there are uh, places whereino discusses gear Sa'ot, but again not, to, in, not not as an innovator but uh, just uh, reflecting what he believes is the, the proper gearson if you lay hands there's uh, almost every case that I have checked there is other there is Gniza evidence for the gear out that he mentions
0: um, what's next on uh, on your plate what's the, what's the next project I, I'm assuming this is ongoing this it hasn't ended. What, what are you
1: working on, Rabbi? Uh, currently, I'm, I'm working on tying up the loose ends. There's a lot of Geniza material that I had used um, in my notes, which I feel uh, deserve exposure on their own. I've recently been engaged in um, publishing fragments that survive uh, from Rabbi David Hanugid, the last of the Maimonidean Negidim, a great, great grandson of Rabbi Avram, was Rabbi David II. Rabbi Avram's son was Rabdavid David. At the end of the chain in the 1300s, here was Rabbi David Hanugid. He used the the last, the seventh Maimonidean to, to sit on that seat. He had abdicated his seat for reasons we don't know and uh, landed up in Syria. And with him, this is a very fortuitous moment in Jewish history, he had brought with him a big portion of original Maimonidean writings. He had the original Piresh of the Chumash of Rabbi Abraham. He had writings of, which survive to this day because of him, of, of the Rambam's of Mishnahes in the Rambam's hand. He had this as part of his library. He brought them with him to Syria, and it was in Syria where, a few hundred years later, um, Christian Hebraists with money and interest in in, uh, in, in, in these kind of uh, manuscripts bought them, brought them back to England, and that's how they survive to this day in the collections of these great uh, British libraries. Um, very fortuitous moment. I can imagine somebody uh, shaking his head and feeling how terrible it is that the Rambam's writings were bought by some Gentile and now carried off far away England. <laughs> But that is what uh, has preserved them. And that's the only reason the on Khumasha survived. It was only first published in 1958 from this manuscript, which would have certainly been lost along with the rest of them. Is, is
0: this the same, Rabbi that some historians speculate brought the Aleppo Codex with him to, uh, to Syria?
1: Yeah. He is the... Also, it's, it's speculation. There's nothing documented about it, but he is the link from, from uh, Aleppo to... Uh, to that, we know that the Rambam saw the codex. And Rambam used it, presumably in in Cairo when in putting together the the Mishnet Torah, where he says he used the Aleppo codex. And then it, it's in and then we, next. We know it's the Aleppo codex, not the Cairo codex, because it's in Aleppo. Uh, he is one of the suggested uh, links from, uh, but it's it's, it's speculatory. So I after, think that
0: if, after Rabbi Man, after you tie up the loose ends, what's next after the loose ends?
1: On the, on the burner is um, what I would like to do. I haven't uh, done any significant work in this regard yet, but my uh, my edition of the Pirish of Rabbeinu Abraham Ben-Aramba is largely scholarly, and it's copious footnotes, long footnotes. Like I told you, it's two volumes, about 1,500 pages. It's long. I believe it's valuable. I, I, I value it. I can't, say, I can't say it's valuable for everybody, but I value it, but I it's, it's 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 hard. It's not a popular commentary. I would like to issue an, an English edition, whereby I would leave out a majority of, of the footnotes. The footnotes discuss why the original translation may have meant this, may have meant that. Parallels, showing why I believe this is what Rabbi Avram means. I would eliminate all that. I would leave it uh, for scholars. I would leave it the Hebrew edition for scholars. But to publish an English one-volume um, edition, which would reflect uh, my understanding of, of the original Arabic commentary, I think that's uh, I think that would be very useful, very valuable. I haven't done a significant uh, work in that regard, but I would like to. That's something that I would like to do.
0: Well, this has been absolutely fascinating and um, so much more to, to cover, but our our time is up and uh, urge all our listeners and viewers to explore Rabbi Maimon's works on Avram ben Arambam online or purchasing them whatever, whatever works. And again, Rabbi, thank you so much for your time today. Appreciate it very much. Thank you.
1: Thank you as well. It's been a pleasure and uh, very happy to come on. So thank you for the opportunity. I wish you and your uh, listeners and viewers a wonderful day and every success in every way.
0: Thank you so much. Thank you.